0: Hello lovely people. I'm Stacy. And I'm Coulter. And this is Any Crime at All. So uh, how y'all doing out there in podcast land? Good, good.
1: It's good to hear. How you doing Colt? I'm good. We had a great night last night. Yeah man.
0: Austin Matthews.
1: 60, 60 goals. goals.
0: In how many games?
1: 73.
0: Fuck yeah baby. And, uh, and we secured home ice
1: advantage. That's right too. Yeah. Woot woot. Yeah, we secured a homeless advantage. I didn't even think of that. Jack Campbell had a shutout. Jack Campbell had a shutout. Yep, yep. Uh,
0: In case you guys haven't noticed, we are, like, huge Leaf fans. I actually have a Toronto Maple Leaf tattoo. Um, So, uh, we've been having a little bit of trouble coming up with our music podcast name. Yeah, we can't think of anything that really sticks. We've batted around a lot of ideas and shot them all down, so i am encouraging our listeners to please get at us on instagram twitter and the facebook and suggest some names for
1: us because apparently we're stupid (laughs) and whoever gives us the name will get a wonderful sex session from me um okay other than that, we'll give you a
0: huge, huge shout out on the pod on the very first podcast. But remember,
1: three minutes of pleasure. <laughs> well, you can't put a price on that. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, you can. The name of a podcast. <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this is part two of Clifford Olson, the Beast of British Columbia. So um, in the last one, we explored how. How he grew up in a pretty normal, loving household, Um, and he was in and out of prisons, mostly by fucking escaping, and that he was... Snitching. Snitching. He was, like, the world's biggest rat, apparently. Um,
1: He should have just... I'm surprised he didn't escape prison by just chewing his way out. He was such a rat. And most of the things at this point were burglary... Homosexual rape. Well, in prison.
0: Yeah. Uh but fraud, I'm, I'm, t- I'm talking oh, about burglary, was, fraud, yeah. forgery, assault, that kind of stuff. That's what he had been in prison for at this time. So when we left off, he had gotten out of prison yet again, he was forty years old. And uh he He'd gotten a job, correct? Well, he was doing odd jobs. He had gotten his very own apartment for the first oh, time. Before yes, this yes. he was like couch surfing and shit like that. But he'd gotten his very first apartment, and he was doing odd jobs and stuff like that. And he had, as I said in the first one, some semblance of a normal life. Okay, yeah. So, in order for Clifford to get these jobs, he'd post business cards in, you know, grocery stores, places like that, and in churches. This is how he met Joan Hale at People's Gospel Church. They flirted awkwardly. Then set up a dinner date. Joan was a little older than Clifford. I think she was only like one or two years older than him. And was recently divorced. So her dating experience was subpar. And old Cliff wasn't exactly a fucking Lothario. You know. Yeah. But he was a charmer. Don Juan, he was not. But he was, he was a, a charmer. Yeah, a
1: manipulator.
0: Yes. He wanted to know everything about Joan. And he listened intently. This flattered Joan to no end. No man had ever been so attentive to her. In reality, Clifford was just fishing for anything he could get or take from her. This is how he found out she'd gotten a tidy settlement from her ex-husband. So I bet dollar signs just appeared in his eyes like yeah. in cartoons, you know? Um, so he didn't give up much information about himself, though. He told Joan he'd had, quote unquote, some run-ins with the law. Clifford manipulated, double-talked, and gaslit her at every turn until before she even knew what was going on, he was practically living with her. Ah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. That kind of guy. Olson was experiencing some alien feelings, however. He liked... Spending time with Joan. He liked doing things to make her happy. Weird, right? He'd
1: never... He only ever wanted to make himself happy. He actually did enjoy it? Yeah. That's... I, I want to say it's a step in the right direction, but... I don't think there is a right direction for Clifford sudden. Yeah. True. It all started as him wanting her money,
0: which he still did. But she'd awakened something in him. Feelings he'd thought he'd been born without. And really, I thought he was too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, now, Joan had been treated very, very badly in her past marriage. Her ex-husband was an abusive alcoholic. She was treated so badly that the small amount of caring and respect that a psychopath like Olsen could muster up Made him seem like Prince Charming. So her ex-husband must have been a piece of work. Yeah. Joan was never allowed to question Clifford, though, about anything, lest he get mad. And he was never wrong about anything. Also, by this time, he was pretty much living off the settlement money she received monthly. Okay, yeah, there we go. What he wanted. Exactly. Um, So Clifford still had his little apartment and one month the landlord called Joan to ask about his whereabouts as he hadn't paid his rent and he wasn't at home. Joan hadn't seen him for a couple days and she assumed he was at his place. Well, it turns out Olson was in jail. For what now? A local prostitute accused him of rape.
1: Okay. Male or female? <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Now, let me explain. Clifford started to feel pretty comfy in his new life with Joan, but he still wanted to get drunk and indulge in his drug of choice, pills. Also, he enjoyed the tender, loving sex he had with Joan, but before her, the only sex he ever knew was violent and rough, and he still had a strong desire for this. Unfortunately, this prostitute, sex worker, Unfortunately, he'd beaten this lady up pretty badly. He looped his belt around her neck, slapped and punched her, threw her around the room, finished his business, then left without paying her. So, the fact that she was a sex worker made the cops believe it wasn't really rape, and Olson was set free.
1: Okay, yeah. Fucking
0: assholes. I, I did... Oh, Coulter, I messed up. I forgot to give the disclaimer about... um. There's obviously, I just said it, there's obviously going to be rape and bad things done to children and stuff like that in this episode. So if you can't handle that,
1: keep listening and power through, dude. Come on. This is any crime at all, so this is what happens on this podcast. Yeah, true that. So after I said that about the cops, I wrote assholes.
0: (laughs) Uh, Joan, of course, was not permitted to ask where he'd been. But she welcomed him home with open arms. So, just a side note here. Clifford did actively search out the sex worker, and his intent was to kill her.
1: Oh, okay. Yes.
0: Fortunately, he didn't find her. I mean, like, how dare she rat him out? You know? Wow. He's the biggest rat in the world, but how dare she rat him out? (laughs) And I put, oh, the irony. Snitching on a snitch. Yeah. Whilst... In jail. Olson worried that Joan would leave him. He couldn't have his meal ticket disappear, so he started thinking of ways to bind them together permanently. What would you think about that? Uh, what, what do you mean? Like, what do you think he was thinking of to bind them together permanently?
1: Marriage? Yeah. A child? Yeah. Yeah, for sure.
0: So he needn't have worried. Joan thought she was entering early menopause, but it turned out she was pregnant. Ah, okay. With this happy news, they decided to get married so their child wouldn't be born out of wedlock. The wedding date was set for May of 1981. Oh, Cliffy's getting married. Yeah. So before they got married, he wanted to take what he told Joan was a little bachelor road trip.
1: Okay, what was he doing?
0: Okay, so the only thing that is clear that he actually did um, was he took a road trip, obviously, visited some of his old haunts, and he ended up at Old BC Penitentiary. By now it was closed, but it was a museum.
1: Oh, okay. I was going to say that he got arrested again? So he went
0: in just to look around, you know, one of his old homes for a good long time of his life, you know, and he... Went to his old cell and he was looking in, you know, um, reminiscing, I guess. Most people do that at, you know, where they got engaged. Nope, he does it at the old pen he was in. (laughs) Um, So some of the guards that had been there when he was there were still there. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Like still working there? Yeah, still working there.
1: Like security or something? Yeah, they
0: were just like... uh, Um, maybe security, but, uh, at places like this, they tend to hire people who did work there as guides Oh, because they have the info, right? So when Clifford got out of prison last time, he escaped from prison. The guard saw him and turned him in. So Clifford was actually in jail for a little bit on his bachelor road trip. That is hilarious. Yeah. But he got out. So as I said, the wedding date was set for May of 1981. And so it was that Clifford and Joan entered into wedded bliss and soon after their son, Stephen. Now I've heard Stephen and Clifford Robert Olson 3rd I'm just, for, the, for these purposes, I'm just going to call him Stephen.
1: Yeah, just to differentiate. Yeah,
0: but uh, like I don't know what his name actually was when he was born. And it, Yeah, so. Okay, so Stephen was born. They moved to Coquitlam, B.C., where Clifford managed an apartment complex, just like his dad did. Yeah. He was a property manager. interesting. Yeah. The family went to church every Sunday, and Olsen doted on his son. He even gave candy and toys to the other kids at the complex. He finally had a normal life. Clifford Olson was a changed
1: man. Or was he? Uh, considering I th- we have a couple more parts to do, I doubt. I doubt <laughs> it.
0: So I just want to point out here. <clears throat> so when I'm working, one cat in particular, Loki, will jump up and demand love from me. And my computer is open in front of me when he does this. <laughs> it says here, he... F-I-N-V space, C-V, F-V, F-3, R-C, A-L-L-Y had a normal life. Well, Loki wants his voice to be heard too. (laughs) That's Loki's input into the story. (laughs) Thanks, Loki. Oh, man. So, ever since... Okay, there's going to be some nasty shit coming up. So just gird your loins, okay? Yep. So ever since... His experience with the sex worker, Olsen had been drinking a little heavier, taking a few more pills, and his hunger for violent sex was growing. He could not or would not fulfill this desire with his wife, so he needed an outlet, and he definitely did not want to get busted again. On November 17, 1980, 12-year-old Christine Weller went to the mall in Surrey, B.C. to window shop. She lingered there for the whole afternoon and into the evening before she got on her borrowed bike and began to pedal home to her dismal house and even more dismal parents. Her
1: parents were not good parents. So, so to be clear, this was six months prior to the wedding? Yes. Okay. Um,
0: she would never be seen alive again. Somewhere along her route home she encountered Clifford Olson. He drew a knife on her and forced her into his car. He took her to the Fraser River in Richmond. Now, there was no evidence of sexual assault on the little girl, but he stabbed her ten times, at least two of those puncturing her heart. Oh. Oh, my God. Yeah. When Christine didn't make it home that night, her parents didn't really notice. It would be several days before they even reported her missing. So you see what kind of parents these these were. Then on Christmas morning, a man was walking his dog near the river when the dog pulled him into the bushes. That's when he came upon the decomposing body of little 12-year-old Christine Wells. Oh,
1: could you imagine finding... Christine Weller. Could you imagine finding that?
0: No. Oh. I really can't. I really can't. And those parents...
1: I mean, come on. Assuming that guy was a regular guy, he must have just well had nightmares forever. Yeah, from all accounts, I guess it was like a middle-aged
0: man. And uh, I just want to point out that uh, it was a dog again. Yep. They 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 feature a lot in his story. Okay, so onward, people. <clears throat> Colleen Dagnalt, and I really, really hope I'm saying that right. If I'm not, I'm terribly sorry, was only 13 years old when she was last seen on April 16th, 1981. Again, prior to the wedding. Right. It would have taken two buses for her trip home, but she had not been seen on either bus that day. Originally, the police treated Colleen's case as just another runaway. Even after Gail Smith, Colleen's aunt, desperately tried to dissuade them of this. I mean, she was going to them, telling them, like, she's not this type of girl. She would not run away. You know? And I say this all the time when I'm listening to podcasts or reading books or whatever. Listen to the parents. They know. Or family. Or family, yes. They know what type of child this is. Um, so, Smith... Gail Smith, her aunt, and Colleen's sister, Corinne, were later asked to look at tattered clothing that they confirmed were indeed Colleen's. On September 17th, 1981, police found a skull and other skeletal remains at a forested area in South Surrey. Pathologists confirmed they were the remains of Colleen Dagnall the next day. So what was the date of that? That she was abducted? That she was found. September 17th. So for five months. Yeah. Okay, so on April 21st, 1981, Darren Johnsrude went to the local uh, mall to get dry cleaning and some stuff from Shoppers Drug Mart for his mom, Sharon. That's where Olson lured him into his car with the promise of a $10 an hour job washing windows. When Darren didn't come home... Sharon called the cops and was told her son was probably a runaway, and they didn't classify teens as missing for 48 hours. On May 2nd, Sharon and her husband got a call from the police. They'd found the body of a boy, and they wanted Darren's dental records. Now, this is May 2nd, okay? On May 8th, the police called again with a request for a description of Darren's clothes and the name of his dentist. That was May 8th. May 10th, the police called to say the body was definitely not Darren. May 11th, the very next day, the police called back to say they'd made a mistake. The dead boy was
1: Darren after all. Isn't that awful? Yep. Oh, okay. But between the last two, that those were close together that mm-hmm. he did that. So I found a quote from Sharon. She said,
0: Quote, I remember screaming. Then I remember being on the floor and seeing Gary on the phone, unquote. Gary was Sharon's husband and also at one time a prime suspect. Aaron was 15. Oh, my God. Now, after the two girls had gone missing, there was some that thought there might be a serial predator at work. However, with the disappearance of Darren John's route, that assumption went out the window. Because at the time, it was thought that serial predators never crossed racial or gender lines. They had a preference, and they stuck with it. Remember, like, the uh, profiling stuff was... I mean, that was only brought into the FBI in 1972. Yeah. And this is 1981.
1: In a different country. 80,
0: 81, you know, in a different country as well. So it's really still in its infancy. Um, so, Sandra Lynn Wolfsteiner was born on September 23rd, my birthday, 1964. On May 19th, 1981, the day she went missing, she was only 16 years old. Now, she had been seen getting into a gray-colored car in Langley, B.C. According to Clifford, Sandra was raped and tortured to death. He buried her in a shallow grave. Now, he did some awful, awful things to Sandra. And if you want to know what they are, I urge you to read The Beast by Ryan Green. But I'm not getting into them here because I don't want to speak them out loud. Are you serious? I'm dead serious. I'm kind of
1: curious. Yeah. Do you want me to say it? Uh well, we gave the disclaimer. At least you don't have to go into great detail, but give a synopsis. Okay, I'm sorry, folks, if this uh offends you in any way, but. So he uh, he had like this long,
0: <clears throat> spike, like a railroad spike, kind of a thing, and he hammered it into her head. Okay, as she was dying. And he would hammer it into different places to make different parts of her body move because of the part of the brain he was hitting. Because it
1: interested him? Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. That's, uh... It's almost like his own puppet. Yeah. That's so...
0: You see dark. why I didn't want to say it? Ugh. And I, I'm, I'm so sorry to the people that... Well, yeah, but I mean, it's what he did. I, I can't change that. I'm if I could, I would, but so anyway, the RCMP had abandoned the search for Sandra after finding a few skeletal remains. It was only after her family identified the clothing that the remains were confirmed to be Sandra. Who were these cops? Uh, awful ones. <laughs> it's unfortunate that they're Canadian cops. Like, it, it really... It pisses me off. Like, do your fucking jobs. Just, they're just half-ass and everything. Now, during all this shit, with the double life, the charming family man, and the brutal pedophile, murderer, now, Clifford almost got himself caught. In one of the apartments he managed there was a sweet little four-year-old girl, no name was given, four years old, that the sick fuck took a liking to. He would ply her with little presents and candy, and soon he was trying to lure her to secret places because he said he had something to show her. Four years old. Fortunately, the girl must have sensed something bad about the man, or maybe her parents taught her that well. That she refused to go with him and she told her parents about Olson. Needless to say, her parents were furious and called the cops. But of course, Clifford turned on the old manipulative charm and the cops knew him to be an informer for them. So the girl's parents started to doubt her story and they sheepishly apologized to Clifford Olson.
1: Oh my God!
0: All this close call did was reinforce to Clifford that he could not curb his bloodlust and that he didn't have to because it seemed like he'd never be caught. So on June 21st, 1981, 13-year-old Ada Anita Court was last seen on her way to catch a bus in front of her brother's apartment in Coquitlam, B.C. She had just been babysitting her two nieces. She never made it home. Two months later a skull and upper jawbone were found near Weaver Lake. Ada's dental records were used
1: to confirm the identification of the remains. Like he's uh like the first the first kill he did in November mm-hmm. but Starting in April, he was just kind of more and more regular.
0: Well, he thinks he can't be caught, so...
1: Yeah, it's just so narcissistic. Oh, you think?
0: My God. So, it was around this time that Olson was brought in for questioning for the attempted rape of a 16-year-old girl.
1: Really? Okay. Mm-hmm.
0: He freely admitted to being with the girl. But, you know, this old story, he was unaware of how old she was. Of course, the cops bought it, and he was set free again. But now, two girls had ratted him out, and he was furious. So, nine-year-old Simon Partington was last seen by his mom, Marguerite, on Thursday, July 2nd, 1981, as he ran out of the house and jumped on his bike to go call on some friends. His family insisted... He was a very, very shy boy and not one to talk to strangers. His bike was later found behind a mall propped against a fence. Simon's remains were found in a cranberry bog near Richmond, British Columbia
1: on August twenty seventh, 1981. Nine years old. You know, this is the first podcast we've done. This is our seventh episode, right? Mm-hmm. Where I can't even think, I can't joke yeah. Like... It's just too sad. I don't even really want to speak. Like, just keep going, Mom. Yeah. It
0: was after Simon's abduction that the police finally thought there might be a serial predator taking children. Fucking idiots. Before this, all the missing kids had been labeled as runaways because they were teens. Eh, they ran away. Don't worry about it. They'll come back or whatever. Clifford Olson was a sub. The bleh. Clifford Olson was a suspect in the subsequent investigation. On Thursday, July 9th, 1981, just one week after Simon Partington was abducted, Olson abducted 14-year-old Judy Cosma. Judy was from New Westminster, B.C. She left home to go visit a friend. She never made it to the friend's house. Now, Judy had been carrying her address book. It contained names, addresses, and phone numbers of her friends. Oh no. After she disappeared, some of the friends got calls from someone who would breathe heavy into the phone, and one girl got a call saying she and her friends were next. Holy fuck. Yeah, that's just some sick shit right there. Judy Cosma's nude body was found on July 25th, 1981, near Weaver Lake. She had been stabbed 19 times. Just, yeah. Now, Judy's parents reported her missing very quickly, and the press picked up on it almost as fast as the police did. A quote-unquote friend of Clifford's thought he saw Judy in Olson's truck the night she went missing he told police he couldn't be sure though and didn't want to go on record however the cops thought it was a step in the right direction but they had too many better tips to follow up on first okay now they had too many better tips to follow up on to follow up on first he's already been brought in or questioned about a 4-year-old and the rape of a 16-year-old You would think that he might be somewhere near the
1: top of the And within such a short time period, he was. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And his history. Yeah,
0: exactly. Raymond King Jr. was 15 years old when he disappeared. He left home at about 1 p.m. on July 23rd, 1981, telling his dad he was going to Manpower Youth to look for a job. At around 8 p.m., he was last seen chaining his bike to a post behind Canada Manpower in New Westminster, B.C. Raymond's nude, beaten body was found on August 5th, 1981, near Weaver Lake by a police dog. Weaver Lake. Yep. Yeah. Incidentally, Judy Cosma's body was found only about 1.6 kilometers away from Raymond's. So now we have a dumping ground. Yeah. Segrin Charlotte Elizabeth Arndt was 18 years old when she went missing sometime in late July 1981. She was on holiday in Vancouver, B.C. from West Germany. Now, I say West Germany because the Berlin Wall was still up at this point. Yes, it was. According to the indictment, Olsen claims to have bludgeoned Seagren to death on July twenty fifth, 1981. On August twenty eighth, 1981, Irmgard Arndt, Segrin's mother, got a call from her sister who lived in Vernon, British Columbia, saying she had the police there and would now translate a sad message. The police found a dead girl who might be her daughter. Ermgard wired a picture of Segrin to them through Interpol for confirmation. This is the only way she could do it at that point. Now, Segrin's body was found buried in a trench under peat. Now, Pete is like like peat moss, yes, I mean, yes. okay? Just a few hundred meters from where Simon Partington's body was found the day before.
1: Oh, my God. Ermgard... Believes... Sorry, that was just two days after him, right? Yes. And that's his 4th in July. Yeah. Because the 2nd, the ninth, the 23rd, the 25th, that's wild. Yeah. Ermgard, again, segrin's mother, believes her daughter
0: quote-unquote, lost caution because of the friendly nature of Canadians. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. Everyone else had been so nice to her that this one guy was nice to her and she was I'll take a ride. Poor thing. Just after this murder, the police brought Clifford in for questioning. Some thought he might be the perpetrator, but most thought he might just have info to give them, as he'd done so many times in the past. Olson asked what they'd be willing to pay for taking them to a couple of bodies he'd heard were secreted in out-of-the-way places. The police said they'd have to talk to local prosecutors first, then they let him go. However, they did put him under surveillance in case he came in contact with the murderer. Now, this is gonna make you And a lot of people, a little bit perturbed. Because it did me. Now, it was the opinion of the cops that he'd only have a clandestine meeting like this at night. So they only surveilled him at night. Oh my God, what? I mean, who would commit a crime in broad daylight, right?
1: Mm Mm-hmm. That is so fucking ridiculous. Yep. On Monday,
0: July 27th, 1981, Terry Lynn Carson left her family house at about 8 a.m. She was a very small girl, about 5 feet tall, 105 pounds. She would not have been able to fight off Olson, let alone anyone. pretty much anyone else. Clifford stopped to offer Terry a ride and a job. She accepted both. Once she was in the car, he offered her a celebratory drink of his laced booze, and she accepted that, too. Olsen then drove about four miles outside the city to the north shore of Fraser River. It was here that he strangled Terry Lynn Carson. He then
1: burned her clothes and threw her shoes and purse in the river. Fraser River, he'd done that there before, too, as well. And that's now, if you're keeping count, folks, that's his 5th in July and 3rd in four days. Just terrible. Now, his murders were getting very close
0: together. And when this happens to most serial killers, they seriously devolve. They become disorganized and they make mistakes. They may even let something slip in their quote-unquote normal life. Not Clifford. It was almost as if he had... Like he was on autopilot. His normal life was just his autopilot, you know? So he never fucked anything up. Louise Chartrand was originally from Quebec, Canada, and had moved to Maple Ridge, B.C. with three of her sisters. On Thursday, July 30th, 1981, 17-year-old Louise left home for her shift as a waitress at a restaurant in Mission, British Columbia. It is believed she hitchhiked part of the way and was dropped off in downtown mission where she went into a store to buy cigarettes. This is where Olson lured her into his car, drugged her and headed to Whistler, BC. On the way he stopped at an RCMP detachment to ask about a gun they'd confiscated. He was turned away without the gun. She was sitting in the front seat, passed oh, out. Oh my God. Once they were in Whistler, Olson took Louise to a gravel pit where he blunge, bludgeoned to her with a hammer before burying her in a shallow grave. The cops' surveillance of Olson had been spotty at fucking best, and some of the older cops really began to doubt that Clifford even knew anything about the abductions. However, a few of the younger cops were pretty convinced he was the child killer. So it was decided those younger cops would keep eyes on him at all times. It was during this time they noticed a real Jekyll and Hyde kind of thing with Olsen when he thought no one was watching. Okay. Now that's not explained. It's not? No, but you can sort of... His face? Probably some of his actions too, like, um, because he was, he, he showed himself to be this calm, charming, you know, really important kind of guy. Maybe when no one was looking, then he was like, you know, like maybe punching his steering wheel and you know, shit like that, that kind of okay. stuff. I wish that, I wish that would have been explained more. Yeah. Yeah. Me too. They were also watching when he committed two burglaries, but they wanted to get him on something bigger. Yeah, obviously. So they sort of let that go, right? Then, one afternoon, as they were following Olson, they watched as he stopped on the side of the highway to talk to a couple of teenage girls. In Euclulat, British Columbia. I had to look that up to see how it was pronounced. (laughs) (laughs) As he chatted with the two girls, the two young cops went back and forth about pulling him over now or tailing him if the girls got in the truck and potentially putting their lives in danger. Like, these are younger cops. Because the younger cops
1: were the ones that were worried. Yeah, they were the ones that were like, this is the guy, man, come on. You'd think it would be the more experienced. You would think. Yep.
0: As the girls got in the truck, and Olson started to pull away the cops decided to stop him. They didn't want to put the girls in danger, right? They arranged for a car to come and get the girls and bring them home safely. Then they arrested Olson on suspicion of burglary. that would hold him for a while. yeah, otherwise he could be out in what is it twenty four to forty eight hours or exactly like that, right as Olson sat in his cell, it was decided more seasoned investigators should take over. Ugh. If they expected to find the meek, jovial informant of old, they were wrong. Sure, Clifford was still oozing charm, but there was none of the feigned weakness anymore. Olson told them, straight up, that he'd lead them to the bodies for a price. $10,000 per body. Holy fuck. To be given to his wife, and child. Ten thousand dollars a body in nineteen eighty one. So he did confess. The police were skeptical, skeptical, but they certainly noticed the change in Clifford. So the go ahead was given to proceed up the chain of command. The forensics team started searching his truck, and they found his quote unquote tools under the seat of the truck. These included sedatives, syringes a hammer, and a long metal spike, like a railroad spike kind of thing that I explained before. They went over the truck with a fine-toothed comb, looking for gas or store receipts, parking stubs where some of the kids had been abducted, you know, it would put him in the area. Hairs, prints, etc. There was a lot of disappointment, until they happened upon a notebook wedged far back under the seat On the cover of the notebook, a name was written, Judy Cosma. Okay. Now, Clifford was their main focus, their prime suspect at this point. They talked to him for hours and hours. Food and cigars were brought in to keep him talking. Olson made some offhand remarks that the general public would not have known about the victims, the murders, the dump sites, that kind of thing. But really, they had nothing on him. Okay, sure, they had the notebook with Judy Cosman's name on it, right? Yeah. But any defense attorney in the world could explain that away in a myriad of ways. Oh, he gave her a ride once, doesn't mean he killed her. He found it, put it in his truck, doesn't mean he killed her.
1: Fucking defense attorneys.
0: (laughs) Also, even if he confessed to everything on the spot, there was not an ounce of actual physical evidence to back it up. There was nothing tying Olson to the four bodies that had already been found either. Nothing.
1: And this was pre DNA, by the way, folks. Mm-hmm. So Definitely. his tools, if they tested the tools, they wouldn't be able to really know what was going on. Clifford Olson would walk away from
0: this a free man. So stuck between a rock and a hard place, the police knew they had, they had to make the deal with this despicable piece of shit or more children would probably die. And that's where we're going to stop. Oh, my God. So coming up next time, we're going to see if they actually made the deal or not.
1: Fucking Clifford Olson, man. We'll see. This guy's got a horseshoe up his arse, don't you think? It's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. Oh man. I agree, and it's it's so hard to. I don't really even have words. Uh, right. Like he got so. So cocky and ad- addicted to the feeling of doing it that. Like I said, all it was the like one, every two days, almost all, all the ones in July. Yeah, six in July, but but four in a week. Yeah, that's almost unheard of for a serial oh, killer. Oh, definitely, definitely. Oh my god. I know, isn't
0: it? It's just so hard to fathom.
1: Well, uh, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Yeah, since we're Um, both sort of speechless here. Yeah.
0: uh, And remember, hit us up with a name for the new music podcast. We
1: would really, really appreciate it. Three minutes of pleasure. I can up it to four. (laughs) Sure you can. (laughs) I'll just have a couple (laughs) beers beforehand.
0: (laughs) But uh, you will get like a huge shout out on the uh, podcast. And when I say shout out, I mean like shout out, dude. Like shout. Yeah. You know it makes me want to shout. Shout out the devil. (laughs) There we go. (laughs) Right on. (laughs) Okay. So uh, yeah, hit us up on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. We are Any Crime at All. Signing out, y'all.